This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Toyota, a company that wants to help you find joy by exploring America's scenic byways. It's really important to me to show the kids different parts of the country and different parts of the world. So I'm trying to get out on as many road trips as I can with the family and build confidence through adventuring. This is professional mountain biker Eric Porter. Recently, Eric and his wife Megan took their sons Owen and Milo on a road trip along Michigan's celebrated M22 highway in a Toyota Highlander XSE. We spent a lot of time traveling around the west coast of the U.S., and I really wanted to show the kids a different part of the country. cool part about being here is we're on the 45th parallel, which means we're halfway in between the equator and the North Pole. The route hugs the eastern shore of Lake Michigan, and it also skirts a number of smaller waterways, giving road trippers access to numerous sandy beaches. I used to come here when I was a kid. Really? Yeah, there's so much fun stuff. Oh, there's the dunes, Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes, right up here. That's not too far. Should I put it in sport mode? Yes. Sport mode! With a sport-tuned suspension, the Toyota Highlander XSE offers confident, fun handling on pavement. And when you're rolling on gravel, its available dynamic torque vectoring all-wheel drive improves responsiveness and stability. The road's going to take us along the water right there, so we should have some awesome views. I'm excited to go paddleboarding because we haven't done that this summer. Whether you're cruising along the shores of Lake Michigan on a family road trip or heading out on a very different kind of adventure, there's a Toyota designed to get you there. When we're at home, it's easy to fall into the routine of school and work, but when we get out on the road, we can leave all that stuff behind and reconnect with each other and with the outdoors. Find the right Toyota to help you find joy on America's scenic byways at toyota.com. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. If you got an invitation to go on a journey that would take you halfway around the planet to a remote region of the Amazon rainforest to enter a cave, a massive cave, one that is steeped in legend and some really bizarre theories, would you go... And what if the point of the journey was to capture some of the sounds and power of the cave in the form of story and art and music so that you could share it with the world? Sounds pretty fun, right? My general way of operating in life is if someone asks me to do something that's extremely strange and interesting and I don't have to do any of the organizing, then I'd be mad not to say yes immediately. This is British electronic musician and composer John Hopkins. He's best known for his dance music. His 2018 album, Singularity, was nominated for a Grammy. He's also collaborated with artists like Brian Eno and Coldplay and composed a soundtrack for a feature film. For John, all that made the idea of a journey far from home and literally under the earth impossible to resist. One of the things I'm always seeking is a form of peace, you know, a way of uh, contacting a more restful side of myself because, you know, the, the world of being a musician led me to a state of quite perpetual overstimulation and uh, I think the idea of living somewhere silent underground for a few days is very appealing. Music has brought me into contact with so many amazing people and experiences and this was definitely the, the most unusual of all of them. So let me try to explain what's going on here. And for that, 
I'm going to bring in the main character for this episode. This is David Kushner, and I am a contributing editor of Outside Magazine. David has been writing for Outside for about 15 years, and I've had the pleasure of being his editor. He has a remarkable knack for finding very unique stories. A blind man who hunted down icebergs in Alaska to make vodka. The first ever treatment center for video game addicts and a bizarre bank robbery in the Arctic. Recently, I asked him, where do you find this stuff? His answer, yeah, the internet. You know, for me, Twitter is like a slot machine because there's always stories floating by and it's just I kind of hit the button and see what comes up. This is how, in early 2019, David learned about the cave. I read a very small item about a young woman in London who had been following in her father's footsteps. And her father had explored a very mysterious cave in the Amazon. And this cave was said to have possibly held secrets of a lost civilization, including perhaps some artifacts from extraterrestrials. If you weren't already thinking that this is going to be a strange episode, well, now you can be sure that it is. Anyway, the woman that David read about was Eileen Hall. She's half Scottish, half Ecuadorian, a former architect who had begun doing what she calls energy healing work. I reached out to her over WhatsApp, and she had this really amazing story to tell. And, you know, it started with her father. Eileen's father, as David wrote to me when he pitched this story for Outside Magazine, was a mild-mannered Scottish civil engineer named Stan Hall, who had a passion for alternative theories of history. In the early 1970s, Stan Hall read a book that set his imagination on fire, Gold of the Gods, by Swiss author Eric von Daniken. And Eric von Daniken basically was the guy who came up with this idea of the ancient alien. Ah, yes, the ancient alien. This is the theory that extraterrestrials visited Earth way back when, making contact with humans and profoundly impacting the course of civilizations. Von Daniken is credited with popularizing this idea with books that he began publishing in the late 1960s. Gold of the Gods was his fourth. And in that book, Eric von Daniken told an incredible story. And the story was that he went down into the jungles of the Amazon in Ecuador, and he went to a place called the Cave of the Oil Birds, um, Cueva de los Tayos in Spanish. What he claimed was that he saw in that cave what he called a metal library. Tablets of gold, actually, written in some kind of alien script. Perhaps that sounds ridiculous to you. But when Gold of the Gods came out in 1972, it was a bestseller. And for Stan Hall, you know, kind of a nerdy engineer type uh, up in the suburbs of Scotland, this really captured his imagination. And what happened was he did this incredible thing. He thought, you know, I'd like to go and I'd like to organize an expedition, which is actually kind of crazy. It was absolutely crazy. But Stan pulled it off. In 1976, he led a team of 100 scientists, cavers, and British and Ecuadorian military personnel into Teos. Stan managed to get Neil Armstrong on board to be the figurehead of the expedition because Neil Armstrong had some Scottish roots, and Stan charmed him. That would be Neil Armstrong, the astronaut, who seven years earlier had walked on the moon. I told you this was going to be a strange episode. So the team didn't find him at a library. 
They did, however, encounter astonishing passageways deep in the cave that appeared to be cut at right angles by machinery, along with a burial site dating to 1500 BC. The expedition made Stanhall famous, and he would go on to spend much of the rest of his life looking for the legendary library. He moved to Ecuador and married an Ecuadorian woman. They had a daughter, Eileen. She says that her dad would at times become obsessed with his research. This obsession, Eileen Hall called it the fever. He got the fever. At times, the family struggled financially. They moved back to Scotland, though Stan kept returning to Ecuador to continue the hunt, developing a close relationship with the Shuar, the indigenous people who have long been the guardians of Taos. In 2008, he was dying of cancer, when Eileen, holding vigil at his bedside, was struck with a new sense of purpose. She would continue the work that he had begun. She promised him that she would follow his spirit. But her purpose was very different. She was, certainly would have been happy to have found a cave full of alien artifacts. But for her, it was more of this idea of the cave as a place of energy. But also just something that was important to preserve. It had a cultural history. It had a meaningful history to the Schwar people. Of course, my next question to her after having this long conversation with her was, are you planning to go back? And if so, could I come along? And the answer to both of those questions was yes. David's assignment for Outside Magazine was to join Eileen on her next expedition into the Cave of the Oil Birds, named for the nocturnal hook-billed birds whose fatty chicks are captured by the schwar so they can reduce them to oil. His feature story chronicled Eileen's quest to both understand the cave's power and to protect the land around it for the Schwar. We published the piece in late 2020, titling it Journey to the Center of the Earth. But since then, David has opened up to me about his own experience inside the cave, as he's come to realize that it transformed him in remarkable ways. And he's not the only one. It felt like a shift that has never... It's never reversed, you know, it's like it it changed something quite fundamental. And when I think of it, um, I realize that, that that's probably a permanent thing. Today, for the last installment in our series exploring Pathways to Happiness, we're going on a wild trip to a place that has long beckoned adventurers and tantalized fans of the occult, but that is now offering something that might be even more alluring than alien artifacts or secrets of a lost civilization. A journey inside yourself. There's a whole journey into the unknown where you have to surrender the ideas that you have about a certain reality or a way of life. This is a recording of a conversation David had with Eileen in August 2019, as they made their way from Quito, the capital of Ecuador, to the Amazon basin where they would begin a 10-hour trek to the cave. You're opening up the mystery of life each step that you go in. And um, if you're open to it, it gives you a lot back. And if you resist it, you'll just suffer. She talked about this idea of thresholds. And for her, a threshold was kind of a, a personal boundary. It's something that's holding you back. Maybe it's a fear. Maybe it's a challenge that you're dealing with. You know, you don't really know it's there until you're you you're right up against it. And she talked about how 
coming to the cave for her was was an opportunity to confront her own threshold because going to the cave is the ultimate unknown. There's nothing more unknown than descending into Taos because you have no idea what you're going to find. And so each of us on this trip, we each had our own thresholds to face. The small expedition team included two musicians, Ecuadorian multi-instrumentalist David Villa Gomez and British producer Henry Hoffy Hoffman. Eileen's goal was for them to record musical performances in the cave that would be part of a multimedia installation to generate support for protecting the region around Taos from mining operations and other threats. We had a purpose, which was to articulate the cave. We were collectively on what I would call an artistic mission and a journey of art in that way. They would be spending two days and nights inside Taos, under the guidance of members of the Schwar village that lived near the entrance. As the expedition began, David realized that he was quite fearful of what was coming, despite his decades of reporting trips. I mean, I was excited as I was. I had a lot of trepidation. As a modern person, you know, you're heading off into a situation where you will be cut off from civilization. I was not thrilled about being out of touch. And then there was, you know, just the physicality, the going into the cave, what's in this cave. Although I've written a lot of adventure stories and done adventurous things, you know, I'm a neurotic Jewish guy who doesn't put himself in a lot of physical, he doesn't do a lot of physical adventure, risky stuff. And I don't take huge risks with my, uh, with my body. I don't jump off of things. It's also something else. It was like just total unknown. The stories that I'd heard coming out of it. Um, you know, these oil birds, which supposedly sound like demons, you know, there's just like hundreds of them down there, giant spiders, snakes, who knows? So I had a lot of things that were going through my head. And I remember at one point I said to Eileen, I asked her what it was like. And she told me that it is a psychedelic experience. I thought that 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 sure is an interesting way to describe whatever it is we're about to do, (laughs) but I was ready for it. But before anyone was allowed inside Taos, there would be an evening ceremony in the Schwar village near the entrance to confirm that the expedition had the blessing of the cave itself. This ceremony involved a shaman. And the idea was that, you know, we were going into this cave, but we couldn't just go into the cave. We had to ask permission of the cave. It's a beautiful night. You could see the stars. There's not a sound except for the crackling of the fire and the sound of the shaman's voice. And then we each had to ask permission from the the powers uh, that be to, to let us into the cave. And then at the end, the shaman said that we had been granted the permission to enter what she called the womb of the earth. And uh, we would be going there first thing in the morning. Shortly after the ceremony, David sat down with a middle-aged Shuar woman named Susanna and her son Jaime, who would be the expedition's primary guide inside of Taos. David wanted to hear what the Shuar believed was in the cave. She was speaking in the Shuar language, and then Jaime was translating that into Spanish. And then Eileen was translating that into English for me. What 
she said to me was that there were two spirits inside of the cave that they believed. They called it a double spirit. One was a, a female entity who protects and cultivates the plants of the area. And the other one was uh, a spirit that makes kind of healing salts. And that spirit's name, name is We. Does he see this being? Does it have a, a appearance ¿Tú le has visto este in your ser? dreams? What they told me was that the spirit of We had essentially fled with, uh, once the white people started coming down there, Wef didn't feel safe and, and, and had not been seen for a while. Ecuador had banned foreigners from the cave soon after Stan Hall's expedition. But the Schwar began leading small groups into Taos in 2010. And as Jaime told David, he had begun seeing and hearing signs that Wei had returned. He started talking to us about a dream that he had been having. And the dream was that Eileen would return to the cave and she would bring two or three others with her. And when she did, if we went to a certain spot in the cave and we sat there in total silence long enough, perhaps where would emerge. Yeah, with little people in silence, he comes out. He told us this and I turned to Henry Hoffman and I said, I think that group is us. Does he think it's possible we may actually get to meet this this being in some way? Entonces, ¿tú crees que si nosotros hacemos lo que nos dices, vamos con poca gente y vamos con lo, sin mucha bulla que se va a aparecer este ser? Yes, he believes that. And that if that meeting happens, it could be a, in a physical form. We could actually, it would manifest like mm -hmm. flesh and... Y si eso hacemos, ¿tú crees que este ser sí va a aparecer así fí físicamente hacia nosotros? Claro, o más sí como puede, ese espíritu. Puede aparecer físicamente. Yes, he believes it could appear physically. We'll be right back. At the top of the episode, we heard from professional mountain biker Eric Porter and his family about their road trip along Michigan's M22 Scenic Byway in a Toyota Highlander XSE. It's pretty cool driving down this road and just pulling up on the beach, blowing up the paddleboards and going out, huh? Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of fun. The family of four had plenty of space in the Highlander XSE, which has plush seating for seven and abundant storage space for gear. And then we just drove a little bit further, and now we're riding mountain bikes. Should we go find some jumps? Yeah, I think yeah. we should. Let's do, do it. it. Just off the byway, the porters found miles of forested trails and all the jumps they could want. When it comes down to it, we just want to spend basically all our time outdoors and try to pack in the most amount of adventure we can. Traveling is one of the best ways to introduce your kids to the world. It shows them a different way of life from where we live and gives them some perspective. Find joy on your own journey along one of America's great scenic byways. No matter what kind of adventure you're after, there's a Toyota designed to get you there. Learn more at toyota.com. Entering Cueva de los Taos, or the Cave of the Oil Birds, begins with a 200-foot rappel along jagged, wet shale. It is not for the faint of heart. I was very scared. Like, it was terrifying. There's no way I'm going to pretend anything other than that. That's John Hopkins, the British musician we heard from at the start of the episode. 
He joined Eileen Hall on an expedition to Teos in August 2018, a year before Outside Magazine contributing editor David Kushner went. Recently, John and David connected to swap stories about their experiences inside the cave. You know, you're hanging on this, it's, a, it's like a tiny little rope, and you're hanging and you, every movement, if you don't move, you will just stay there, which of course means you're totally safe. But this is not, so it's technically not a rational fear, but yet at the same time it feels like a very rational fear. You swing out into it and then you just go down like a foot at a time, but it takes so long because it's about 65 metres. And then you hear the oil birds whose, whose voices, I mean, it's a sound like I've never heard before. a kind of chattering, cackling, ghostly sound. David Kushner describes it a bit differently. I can only compare it to Linda Blair in The Exorcist when her head is twisting around, but times about a thousand. So it really sounds like screams. Once I pushed myself over that edge and, you know, holding onto the rope and looking up at the sky. Uh, and it was a sky that I knew I wouldn't see again for a few days. And that was quite a moment. The descent into the cave probably takes about 10 minutes or so, but it feels like a very long time. And I'll never forget the feeling of my feet touching the ground and being inside the cave for the first time because I felt peace. I felt a sense of uh, calm being in this cave. Even though it was pitch black, even though these birds were deafening, even though I knew there would be tarantulas and and all kinds of uh, other creepy crawlies down there. It was a sense of peace and calm and quiet. I shined a light into the distance and I saw the first of of these archways that lead from one part of a cave to the next. And what I had read in my research before going was that these these archways, they are so smooth and they're at right angles that they appear to have been made by humans. Oh, it looks like right angles. Right, this looks totally like a column. And I always question that because that seems impossible that anything would look that precise. But sure enough, the second I saw the first of those kind of archways, I turned to Henry and I said, that looks like ruins. If someone had just dropped you in there and didn't tell you anything and 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 lit it up, you would think, oh, this was some kind of a, an underground city. And then there's this passageway which we're about to go down. Even though I had spoken to geologists who said to me, there is an explanation for those formations, your mind looks at it and tells you something very, very different, um, which is that... I am standing in the ruins of some civilization. The scale of Teos can be a bit hard to imagine, but in a word, it's big. 
Some of the chambers are hundreds of feet tall. That, plus those perfectly cut archways, are what led Eric von Daniken, Stan Hall, and others to believe that this place was carved by ancient aliens. And the deeper you go into the cave, the more spectacular it becomes. We were in a massive, massive arena. It was so big, in fact, that I I called it King Kong's Palace because it looked like the ruins of where King Kong would have lived. There were, you know, boulders all around us, and it, it certainly did have that feeling. The group set up camp in the gargantuan main chamber which can hold a 20-story building laying on its side. Why am I whispering? Like, it makes a difference. I've never been to the moon, but this felt like going to the moon that was inside of the Earth. It was rocky and black with uh, very rich soil that was really teeming with life. So there were tarantulas the size of my palm. Oh, my God. Wait, do we have to worry about these things? No. Why not? Because they live under rocks. There were very strange, other kind of steampunk-looking spiders. One that had a a giant beetle in its mandibles. This is the craziest thing I've ever seen. It's like, I don't want to Oh my God, stay the fuck out of my tent, buddy. Do not think about it. They don't bite. They don't bite. Yeah, I don't care. (laughs) So I really felt like I was on another planet inside of our own. The group made rice and lentils for dinner, then got ready for the first of the planned musical recordings that Eileen hoped to use in an art project in London that would generate support for protecting the region around Teos. David Villa Gomez, the Ecuadorian musician, passed out folk instruments and drums. And it was a remarkable thing to to hear and to experience and to participate in because the sound of a drum echoing off a 200-foot-high, 300-foot-wide rock wall chamber deep down in this space, it was just incredible. We had this feeling that we were in a place that defied the imagination. You don't think a lot about what's inside the earth and this world that's down there. This spot, because it was just so so deep and so quiet and so filled with mythology and history, it, it had what I can only describe as a magical feeling. The following morning, the expedition planned another recording session at the Altar of Light, the one spot deep inside the cave where there's sunlight. It streams in through two openings in the cave ceiling. When you walk into the Altar of Light, it's just beautiful. You know, the light is misting down 
over the shale. It's coming down about 200 feet. It's very misty in the morning. You know, there's there's dew and water kind of dripping down. You see the earth is very fertile and there's kind of shoots of grass and leaves. It's really incredible. And we just sat there and we watched the light change. I can't even tell you how long we did it, but the way the light shines in is it comes in and it's sort of diffused all over the place, but then it starts to get concentrated and splits into about three or four beams of light. It's almost like someone's holding a magnifying glass above and just shining a direct beam down to the soil. And it's unbelievable to see because the beams of light start moving. And at one point, actually, they condense into one solid beam of light that's shooting right between two pillars of rock and I took a photograph of that moment which I actually have hanging in my house because it really felt like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. The plan was for David Villa Gomez to do a solo performance on his flute while standing atop a large rock in the center of the Altar of Light. But the minute that David was about to start playing, something happened. David was, up until this point, a very jovial, happy guy. As he's starting to play, though, his demeanor completely changes and he begins to sob heavily. I mean, so heavily that he has to he has to kind of squat down and put his head between his knees and is just weeping as though he found out someone had just died. And this went on. For a good 15 minutes, everyone came over, comforted him, and finally he collected himself and he started to play this music. This incredible, beautiful music from his flute. What was it like for you to, like, what were you thinking as you watched this unfold? I'm thinking, what the fuck is happening? That's a phrase that I had said several times, you know, where when all of my journalistic powers kind of left me and I could only just look at whoever was standing next to me and say, what the fuck is happening? Because this place feels weird. It's the kind of thing where when you describe it to other people, you can't help sounding a little bit crazy. And I'm not inclined to feel that way necessarily. You know, um, I, I, I'm skeptical and, and, and scientific and all of that, but being down there, it was this incredible feeling. And to watch David become kind of a, a, a vessel and a transmitter of whatever energy was down there was incredibly intense. And when I asked him later what was going on, what he did tell me in broken English was that he felt something inside of him die when he was there. But not die in a bad way, but die in the sense of like, I took it to mean something left him. You know, there was something that 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 died and and it was something that was meant to die and and now this there was this kind of I don't know rebirthing in a sense and this was the this was the feeling of the music that he played.
Later that day, the team entered a section of smaller passageways, shimmying around stalactites until they reached the area where Jaime said that Wei, the spirit of the cave who makes the healing salts, might emerge. We got to this spot in the cave um, where we would sit and we had to be silent and we had to wait. We had to turn off the lights. And this would be the spot where we might encounter Wei. And uh, we just sat there and we sat there and experienced the nothingness of that of that spot and the kind of everythingness of that spot. It was an incredible feeling to sit there for a half hour in total darkness in what felt like the center of the earth. And as I sat there silently, I started to hear a sound. It was kind of a, a, a bit of a, a rushing kind of breezy sound around my head. And then I felt a little wisp of, of something kind of brush against me. And I realized that, that, that there are bats down there, of course. So there are bats kind of circling around. And then after about 30 minutes, we put the headlamps back on and then we talked about what we each experienced. And Jaime said that he felt the presence of a being. And I'll never forget Hoffy turning to him and saying, which being is it? Is it the one with the salt? Which, can you ask them which being it is? Is it the, um, is it the one with salt? And Jaime actually said, no, it is not where. This is not where. It was actually another spirit. And this spirit is one who watches out for the cave and was also watching out for us. And the spirit was also there along with another one, he said, and that was the spirit of Stan Hall, Eileen's father. Okay, so he says that uh, my dad's spirit is in this chamber and that he feels it. None of this creeped David out. He says he found the idea of the spirit of Stan Hall being there in the cave with his daughter quite moving. And the Schwar were clearly being authentic. They believed in everything they said. The expedition's final destination in the cave was a waterfall near another massive chamber. As the group made their way, the ground became increasingly slick, and David grew anxious. He worried that he was going to fall and re-injure a shoulder he had dislocated a half dozen times in his past. I was fixating on this. I hadn't done it in years. Why is this in my mind? I don't know. And while I'm kind of caught up in my own mind, I look around and I realize that I am alone. I have somehow lost the group. I have my headlamp and I have my digital audio recorder. I have a wet notebook, which is useless, and I don't know where I am. So David wandered and soon got to a dead end. He turned around and headed through a passageway. And I started to hear a sound. And I followed the sound and I came to the most incredible sight I had seen yet, which was a waterfall. A waterfall deep 200 feet down inside the earth, three miles in on a hike. You know, I traveled from around the world to get to this spot and to see this water flowing down from about, I would say, 12 feet high down a rock wall and filled an area like a basin, like a pool. And it was unbelievable. 
and I just sat and looked at the waterfall and I thought about thresholds and I thought about fear and I thought about all of the fear that I had had coming into this experience. Fear of descending 200 feet into the ground, fear of being cut off from my family, from civilization, all of these things that I was thinking about. And then now sitting there and thinking, where are these guys? Did something happen to them? And then I looked at that waterfall and I remember thinking very consciously, I do not want this feeling. I don't want this feeling anymore. These fears are in my head. They're not real. And I felt in that moment, the waterfall take these fears away. Even talking about it now, it, it feels emotional because it was so beyond me. And even though I've had other spiritual moments in my life, that moment was unlike any other one I've ever had because I truly felt like something left me and I felt like I left it behind. And not until right now, this very second, have I connected that to what David went through when he was in the altar of light? Um, because now I'm thinking about it, he described the same thing happening to him, that something died. And that's all I can say about my experience. It felt like something died, like I left something, I, I kind of exercised something that I didn't want and I didn't need and left it there to be washed away in that waterfall. More than two years after his journey into Taos, David says the experience remains a constant presence in his life. I, I haven't felt the same since, and I never say shit like that. <laughs> I do not. I'm a, you know what I mean? Like, I am a scientific mind, and I carry this around with me every day. There's something about having gone to that length and, and gone that far and endured all that and gone through it and seen it and realized that there's more to our lives and to this experience than the world we walk on. There's the entire world underneath. The multimedia art installation that Eileen Hall had planned to create with recordings from inside Taos was postponed by the pandemic. But she launched an expansive digital version called the Liminal Compass. Meanwhile, on November 12th, John Hopkins will release a new album that translates his experience in the cave into music. It's unlike anything he's created before. There are no dance beats, but there are several songs that include recordings made inside the cave. Fitting with the way Eileen described what it's like to be there, the album is called Music for Psychedelic Therapy. In the track you're listening to, which John put out ahead of the release, you get a sense of the lasting impact the Teos had on him, which is something that he was very open about in his recent conversation with David. Really, I'm trying to capture the essence of what it felt like to be there. There's something, whatever it is, whatever it is that can't be explained, it, it, isn't, it didn't feel dangerous and it felt beautiful. It's like an expanding of the parameters of what you think you could do and the effect that the ripple on effect that that might have on other things you know the risk of sounding a little out there it's really like the cave was reaching out to be captured in some way and to be presented in some way 
and I think the caves have a message and I love thinking about it that way it doesn't matter if you think I'm people think I'm insane for saying it it's just like you go down there capture it in some way even if it's just to give people a sense of how it felt so they can briefly feel calm but to me it really feels like it has a voice but no, I think you would find that the people that have lived there and been guardians of the caves for so long um, would say it has a spirit to it I'm essentially agreeing with that I'm just calling it a different thing You can pre-order John Hopkins' new album, Music for Psychedelic Therapy, at johnhopkins.co.uk. John is spelled J-O-N. Eileen Hall's Liminal Compass Project is online at taos.org. That's T-A-Y-O-S. Henry Hoffman provided many of the best audio recordings from Inside the Cave for this episode. He's on Instagram at henry.j.h.hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N. David Kushner's Substack newsletter is called The Disruptor. Subscribe at davidkushner.substack.com. My name is Michael Roberts. I wrote and produced this episode. Though David interviewed John Hopkins, and I leaned heavily on David's 2020 feature story for Outside Magazine, Journey to the Center of the Earth. That exceptional piece is available to Outside Plus members at OutsideOnline.com. Original music for this episode and all the episodes in our Happiness series by Louis Weeks. This episode was brought to you by Toyota, a company that wants to help you find joy out on America's scenic byways. Learn more at Toyota.com. The Outside Podcast is made possible by the support of our Outside Plus members. Learn more and join at OutsideOnline.com slash OutsidePLUS. Outside Podcast listeners get 25% off an Outside Plus membership with the coupon code OutsidePod. That's OutsidePod, all lowercase.